son woke me this morning, loud and clear, saying, Hey, I've been trying to wake you up for 15 minutes. Don't be so rude. You are only the second poet I've ever chosen to speak to personally, so why aren't you more attentive? If I could burn you through the window, I would, to wake you up. I can't hang around here all day. Sorry, son. I stayed up late last night talking to Hal. When I woke up Mayakovsky, he was a lot more prompt, the son said petulantly. Most people are up already, waiting to see if I'm going to put in an appearance. I tried to apologize. I missed you yesterday. That's better, he said. I didn't know you'd come out. You may be wondering why I've come so close. Yes, I said, beginning to feel hot, wondering if maybe he wasn't burning me anyway. Frankly, I want to tell you, I like your poetry. I see a lot on my rounds, and you're okay. You may not be the greatest thing on earth, but you're different. What is fire? We've all been around fire. We've either made fire, we've seen fire, we've lit matches, all sorts of different things. Basically, fire is a chemical reaction. It needs three things. They are referred to as the fire triangle. Oxygen, that stuff around you, you breathe it in all the time. There are other oxidizers that can produce fire as well, but that's the big one, you know, nitrites, chlorates, nitrates, the most common though, oxygen. It also needs fuel, which is like solid wood or gasoline or any number of other combustibles, methane, so on and so forth. The third is heat, and it might seem kind of counterintuitive that heat would be part of the triangle, but you need heat to start fire. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent. Look what I have created! I have made fire! Oh, chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? Oh, body swayed to music, oh, brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast, you anarchists who secretly vote Screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. You're in for a treat this week. We are about to take a fantastic voyage off the coast of Long Island to a place that's become a mythology unto itself. I am talking, of course, about none other than Fire Island. Brooklyn photographer Matthew Leifheit spent months there, documenting the nightlife that moves between the Belvedere Guest House, the Ice Palace, and the Me Track. What he produced with that documentation is a stellar exhibition of new photographs, on view this month at Delhi Gallery. Matthew is near and dear to humor and the abject. In fact, he provided Sean with his first paid writing gig ever. But enough from me. Let's turn it over to your host. Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 89 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Let us waste no time in getting into this week's conversation. Except for a quick minute to remind you to subscribe to Humor in the Abject on Patreon for just $3 a month. 
That's one ATM fee for more than four hours every month of dazzling conversation, bonus sound pieces, writing, video, and more. Head over to patreon.com slash humor in the abject. That's patreon.com slash humor in the abject. And show me that you love me. This week's guest is photographer Matthew Lifehite out of Brooklyn, New York. I've had the pleasure of knowing Matthew for several years now, and he's got a solo exhibition up at Delhi Gallery's new Brooklyn location through December 2nd. You'd be a fool, and frankly a coward, to miss it. Matthew is the editor-in-chief of Matt, that's M-A-T-T-E, magazine, and was previously the photo editor at Vice. His writing has been featured in Foam, Aperture, Time Life Box, and other places. And he teaches at not one, but four colleges. Isn't that the millennial fucking dream? Pratt, Parsons, SVA, and his alma mater, Yale. Uh, His work's also been widely exhibited nationally and internationally over the years, and has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Time, the New Yorker Times, uh, and a million other places. Thanks for tuning in. Give me some money. Here's my conversation with Matthew Lifehite. Matthew Lifehite, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. How is autumn in New York City this year? <laughs> today, it's like a um, like a, that kind of like black sky, and it's all wet, and the leaves are falling out of the trees really fast. And it's been good, though. I love, yeah, it's been nice. That sounds beautiful, actually. It's the best time of year. Yeah. Have you been up to the Hudson Valley at all to see the leaves change? No leaf peeping in my fall yet. Oh no, I did. I went to Maine. I went to Maine with my boyfriend and, and my family actually. And yeah, they're le- great colors there. Wonderful. It's like, just really. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, I last year I was at this time I was teaching up at Dia Beacon, and so every Saturday I took the Metro North up, and um, no joke, just seeing the leaves change over the course of the fall was uh, it was an incredible experience. <laughs> Really well, you know, God is a wonderful artist. Look you at know, God. Just... <laughs> Great job. With, yeah. Uh, in the interest of giving a little historical context to the listeners here, uh, as I was putting this together and reaching out to you, I remembered that you were the first person who ever offered me money for my writing. Uh, oh, in, great. in April 2014, <laughs> when you were you were still working at Vice. Were you the photo editor there? Yeah, I was the photo editor advice for like three years. Um, and yeah, I had a number of, I, part of what I did was I got to hire people to contribute to the website. Um, and I had liked the zines that you were publishing with social malpractice. Uh, yeah, so we I met think, at the New York art book fair, right? Cause we, we were, were both in the zine like we were, Yeah. We were tabling pretty close to each other and you were, you were exhibiting map magazine. Um, and I distinctly remembered that from that first year because in the zine tent, the production value of Matt was like a few notches above the other <laughs> wares around the space. Um, could you give a quick, cause are, are you still doing Matt? It's still in existence. Yeah. I just released the 49th issue. Whoa. That's so a, I've done a whole bunch. Oh my yeah. god! Can you? What's just a quick overview? What was the genesis? Of, like, what is Matt Magazine, and how, why did you start it? Um, I started it as my senior thesis at the Rhode Island School of Design in 2011, um, and it was. I just thought it was a unique opportunity because it was the first time that like digital offset and on-demand publishing had really gotten good enough that you could 
reproduce photographs um, reliably. And so uh, I thought this was like a way that one person could be a magazine because I didn't need to do like production and you could print like 20 copies or something. You know, the yeah. first few issues that I did, I published, yeah, like 25 copies or something. Um, and but I continue to do it. It's usually one artist per issue, although there are exceptions. And, um, yeah, I've done it. So it's been since 2010. Um, and I, I like having it as a platform, you know, I don't work as a photo editor anymore or right now. And I, um, I like having a way to like feature work that I think is good. So last year I was teaching, I was like adjunct teaching at four different schools. Oh and so the 49, it was really crazy. <laughs> and so, but I thought I, I had a bunch of students across the schools that were doing really interesting work. So the 49th issue was my best students 2018 issue, which um, collects 20 artists from across uh, Yale and SVA and Pratt and Parsons and the classes that I had that were doing interesting work. That's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. And I got the schools to buy ads, some of the schools to buy ads on the back covers. So some of them. <laughs> partly subsidized. Yeah. Um, did, you, uh, did you do an issue with Ezekiel Muhammad? I definitely did. And he's been on the podcast. Woo, yeah. He is, <laughs> well, and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was guest number three, I think. And Ezekiel and Darcy Wilder and I, Darcy Wilder and I have a podcast within this podcast the DSA yeah. podcast, which stands for Darcy, Sean, and Ezekway, and DSA stands for nothing else but Darcy, Sean, and Ezekway. But that's cool. The world is so small. Yeah, um, or Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, would, they would immediately counter that with both of them live in Manhattan. So I'm sorry. Born and raised. <laughs> um, but so the reason that I, uh, you know, finally got in touch about having you on an app, which also we'd been in touch before around the podcast because you shot Alex DeCorte's image um, that you kindly lent me to use for the blog post for that episode a while ago. But I'd been wanting to ask you for a while. And then uh, I got the press release for your show at Delhi Gallery that is up through December 2nd, Fire Island Night. Um, so for the listeners, you will be able to go see that for a few more weeks here. Um, and so, you know, Fire Island's kind of mythos has been explored in novels and film, music, theater for decades. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the works that you created for the show and what was the narrative that you wanted to put forth that maybe wasn't yeah, already I told? Mean, I think, yeah, certainly there were, there have been a lot of um, novels and uh, particularly novels from kind of you know, the time right before the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. that uh, um, really made a, you know, painted a vivid picture of life on fire island and then there but photographically there's not that much i've actually heard it you know in the 1950s someone told me if you went uh if you brought a camera to fire to the gay part of fire island someone would throw it in the bay because I could there was this yeah, fear of, yeah yeah there was a fear <laughs> of like outing people so it's like there's not um you know there's a few pictures of like auden on fire island or um you know frank o'hara but um Yes. So in terms of like photographic work that addresses Fire Island, there's Pajama, which was um, Paul Cadmus, Jared French and Margaret French collaboratively made these in the 1930s and 40s, I guess, made these um, amazing surrealist pictures that were sort of snapshots they made on the beach. And I think that's my favorite. And actually, I had gotten I got a grant to study the estate of this photographer, George Platt Lines, when I was at Yale and 
I looked at a lot of pajama photographs then. Um, uh, and, uh, and I had been there once before to shoot a story for Vice in 2014 about underwear parties that were held on the island. Hmm. But I was in the library looking at these pajama photographs and I was like, I really need to go back to that place just because the landscape is kind of surreal and incredible. Um, and then, uh, but otherwise, you know, the most famous photographs from Fire Island are by Tom Bianchi and they're these Polaroids of, um, very much of the pines of like muscle gays in the seventies, mostly, um, are the famous ones. Um, and I just feel like there's more to be explored. A.A. Bronson did some, uh, has done, uh, work in the meat rack, the cruising ground, like self-portraiture and my, um, friend Bryson Rand has done some great pictures in the meat rack too, but I feel like it as a place just contained a lot of the things that I had been thinking about and wanting to talk about in my work. And I decided I needed to go there and make something, uh, really the pictures are only at night. And I felt like that a lot of so much of what happens there happens at night. Mm -hmm. And that part I felt like hadn't really been depicted at all. I think for, you know, a number of reasons. How long did Uh, you spend there when you were shooting? Did you have to go to do research? I mean, it sounds like you went for Vice in 2014, you said? Yeah. And then when you went to shoot this series of photographs, was this just kind of a long weekend or did you have to go multiple times? What was the engagement in kind of physically being there like? Oh, yeah. I spent three months straight, actually a little bit more there um, because I had applied to this residency there, which I didn't get. It's, you know competitive and stuff and uh and but I was like I really like just need to go there to make this work Mm -hmm. and um and I had been sort of making I think for almost a year before that I had just been figuring out how the color in the photographs would look I've been doing these tests figuring out like lighting and a specific way of exposing the film and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah so then I went um but I decided I was just going to go and figure it out and so I went for um, in May, as soon as I finished teaching, I, cause I had been so overwhelmed with like all of this adjunct teaching, I went immediately to <laughs> like to the, to the beach and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in my own work. Cause the reason I'm, you know, I, I used to work at Vice and I like kind of quit this full-time job in order to go to grad school. Cause I felt like I'm an artist and I, I need to restructure my life so that it can be organized around my work. Mm-hmm. And I thought teaching would be a way to do that. But I, I'm finding it kind of impossible to actually do my own work while I'm teaching. Uh, so it seemed like the summer was at least this three month period that I could have only for photographing. It's like um, you gave, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate, I think, of the, the self-awarded residency. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I was just I was just in D.C. over the weekend um, doing this event that was there. And I was meeting with these artists who are from D.C. and Baltimore and stuff. And we were talking about that, about when you have the the opportunity to do something like that, you got to jump at it, even if, you know, an organization or an institution, especially when it's super competitive, you know, you're like, well, they're probably going to say no, just based on volume of applicants. So a plan B is, you know, why not just give yourself one? (laughs) Yeah. Especially if you've been working for teaching at four colleges for the year. Like, yes, you deserve a few months off on an island. I needed it. And I sort, so I sell, (laughs) I made an addition, an addition portfolio of old pictures that I had made in Key West and I sold them on my Instagram and raised some money to, you know, do, and I sublet my apartment in Brooklyn 
And at first I was staying at this, um, I had gone to cover these underwear parties for Vice and this guy, Daniel Nardiccio, who throws the underwear parties, offered that I could stay in the house where the go-go dancers of the party live, which is called Big Dick's Halfway Inn. Um, uh, So it was like, that was like great, a great, it was very generous of them and it was a great experience. They let me live in the attic um, of the go-go dancing house. That sounds amazing. It was amazing. And that, so I did that for, um, almost a month. Um, and then I moved to this, um, this house in the way out in the dunes inside of the national park that's on fire Island. That was, it's called Oakleyville. It's this crazy place where it's like 10 houses, um, that you have to walk two miles through sand to get to. And it's this place that Peter Hughes are and Paul tech and, other, you know, Sontag and people went in the seventies. That's this, it's really wild. It's like almost a place that doesn't exist. It's sort of as, um, and so I went with my friend Marcelo, who's an art historian and he had heard, um, that Paul tech was making these life casts when he was there for the summer in the seventies and neighbors had been finding little body parts cast from Paul tech's like hands (laughs) and feet around the town. And so we went looking for limbs and it was almost sort of like these, you know, like those people are my heroes. And I felt, it felt like this kind of like history was waving at us, you know, and it was like, um, and it turned into this thing where I found the person whose mother had rented this house to tech and huge R in the seventies really is like an amazing supporter of the arts. Like she just loved artists. Like she, she was like, I think what you guys do is a, like a gift to humanity. And she was like, if you can, you know, if you want to stay in this house, I'd be interested and someone who knows the history of the place being there. So I was able to stay in this kind of really remote, yeah, like little cottage in the woods for the next, you know, June through August. That's incredible. Um, It was really nice of her. And it was, um, and it was this experience of like being alone a lot of the time with my dog, I guess. And, uh, you know, I was only working at night. So I'd walk like two miles back to Cherry Grove or the Pines to do photo, photo shoots. And then I would, trudge through the sand in the dark back to this like house in the middle of the wood, like a shack in the middle of the woods where there might not be anyone else around for two miles. It was, it was like intense and good. I had, I was real, and I didn't answer emails for three months. Like I really just decided like, I'm like, I'm not going to be held accountable. I'm just making photographs this summer because I'm actually very slow. I learned, I used to do, you know, I used to work as a photojournalist and stuff sometimes. And I'm not good at working that way where you just go someplace and kind of try and cover it. And I feel like I needed especially because I wanted to do, you know, a lot of like nude shoots and stuff like that, like figurative photographs. I needed to stay there and like form relationships with people yeah. in order to photograph them sometimes, you know. Um, That's interesting too, to, to go at it as you have this background as a photojournalist and you, you know, on the, on the one hand, this project could be thought of as a type of photojournalism, but yeah, you're, you're first and foremost, a like a contemporary artist. And so you're approaching it in a really different way. It sounds like you're not just going there. You're not making dispatches back in real time. You're collecting this kind of thing that you're, you're crafting like a work, not an article. Yeah. And it's a really different approach. It sounds like a very conducive meditative and also kind of like intense and isolated way to be what I imagine is dipping into like a really, really high energy social scene. And then this kind of like quiet trek back through the nighttime dunes to yeah. your place to sit there and kind of brood over everything that you've shot and like kind of yeah. think about the things that's wild. Yeah. It's what I always wanted. Like the, it's the real, 
you know, living in a garret and rolling around in oil paint with a striped shirt. <laughs> yeah. existence. Like, that's really, real art. that's yeah. really amazing. Um, so Jack Parlett wrote this wonderful press release for the show that, um, you know, came out through Delhi and is also on Delhi Gallery's website. And then this expanded kind of version of it in what um you send a digital copy to me it's like a brochure that comes that one can grab at the exhibition or how how what is what is that secondary text piece that you sent me yeah there's a brochure that's kind of modeled after like a national park service brochure um the the design wasn't finished in the version that i sent you but it's like a yeah it's like a brochure that has so jack parlett is this um lovely person that I met by total coincidence. Like so many of the things with this work have happened through just like amazing um, coincidences through talking to people. But uh, um, my friend Joseph Keckler, who's a performance artist who mm-hmm. is going to do a performance at the show later this month, we're still working out the date, um, uh, had met this guy Jack in London who was writing a PhD at Oxford about poetry on Fire Island, huh. which was an amazing coincidence. And so he was in New York and we did a studio visit and he agreed to write this text for the show. So there's sort of a condensed version for the press release yeah, yeah, yeah. and then a longer version in this pamphlet, which I thought it was, um, I think it does a really good job of giving like historical context for the work. Yeah. It was super interesting for me to read and kind of understand, um, also the geography of the Island and kind of the, the social scene there. And I, I wanted to ask about that in a little bit, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on that, Jack wrote about was um, something that appeared in in both, which I really kind of liked was this idea of Fire Island mixing anarchy with grandeur mm. and and how that really does come through in the photographs. And so I, I was curious, how do you, as, as a photographer, how do you go about capturing that? Because, you know, the grandeur aspect of like the Belvedere house, which is one of the lodging places, that seems you know, that seems kind of like natural, like it's very, um, there's a lot going on, like the grandeur is easy to capture. But (laughs) how do you, I mean, how with a with an apparatus or like a recording tool, such as a camera, how do you not interrupt the anarchy? I mean, you sort of hinted (laughs) at it before you said you had to develop these relationships with people. But how do you still manage to capture all of that that's going on? um, You know, when you're kind of like a documentarian kind of moving around and yet it's the anarchy like this kind of pleasant anarchy still comes through i, I like that question thank just you just a second my dog is can you hear my dog like whining <laughs> i don't i don't want to like have it, it sound like i'm torturing an animal in the background of this podcast um, from, but, uh, uh, we'll do a dog break what is your dog's name debbie hair yeah i mean i basically had to stage all of them to some extent it was like um particularly in the cruising ground, in the meat rack, I wanted to show that people go there to have permissive sex at night. And I didn't feel like I could just go in there with a flash and like surprise people. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And so I can't like, so I thought, you know, I at least have to like ask, you know? So I, if I went there with a camera and I saw someone that I wanted to photograph, I would just ask them, or in some cases I would bring someone with me to photograph. Um, And it sort of took until the end of the summer. I had done some sort of shoots where they would start to become sexual between the people in them. And I would sort of have to stop photographing at a certain point. Um, (laughs) But then at the end of the summer, I don't know, I had a studio visit with my friend Eva O'Leary. And I think she was like, there's a lot of you're like hinting at sex in a lot of these. I feel like you should try and photograph like some people having sex. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that's like (laughs) something that I actually hadn't really tried before, but I 
wanted to. And so I had to figure out a way to do that. And so I asked, she actually had a really good idea where she was like, ask someone, you know, if they, if they know anyone who would be interested. Mm. So I asked one of my friend, Ryan, who's one of the guys at the, who works the underwear parties. And he said that he would do it uh, or would be up for the shoot, but like didn't have a partner. So we had to, we found someone and yeah, they had a conversation about their statuses and we did a photo shoot and it was actually really, I felt, I think everyone involved felt like it was like a nice, my worry was like the shoot would be over and everyone would be like, wow, that was really weird or something Uh, or like that felt terrible. And in the end of one of the guys was like, Oh, I feel, you know, um, liberated and beautiful or something. And I was like, that's ideal. I feel, you know, that's like, um, cause it's the closest I've come to like the line of like, um, being a pornographer. Huh. So it's, which I don't actually, you know, I'm not too worried, you know? Yeah. Not. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like so much of the, so much of everything that happened though, what you said a little bit ago about kind of all of these things just kind of working out by coincidence. Um, but so much of it too, seems like, a lot of it worked out because you spent the time and did the diligence to kind of build trust in relationships or, or speak to people or not try to rush things, you know, yeah. giving yourself several months to shoot the, the work is I think really smart and it, and it comes through in it. What are the types of photographic processes that you were using for the series? I read this preview uh, about the show on gay letter that listed the works as dye sublimation prints on aluminum and i don't know what that means yeah it's, it's not <laughs> um it's like an industrial process they're really they're done um uh with 35 millimeter film okay. i'm not even you know it's actually the most i'm actually a very um um traditional photographer or i'm someone who's concerned with like the history of like photography like mm-hmm. i would definitely refer to myself as a photographer and not really i don't uh I'm not ashamed of the um, <laughs> terminology, um, but so it's done, you know, I didn't even crop them. It's done using 35 millimeter Kodak gold film, which is like the consumer grade. Yeah, when you get a yeah, Walgreens, yeah. it's the cheap one. So it's, um, so, and really long exposures at night using these, I would, I had a bunch of portable kind of like LEDs that I would bring to these locations to light them. And then, um, they're printed on, but there's so much black in the pictures. I wanted the actual, um, and I also think with photographs, like if you're going to ask people to come see a show of like photographs, they better be really good in person. Cause they look pretty good on the phone mm-hmm. usually, or they look, you know, they photographs translate, you know, one of the powers is that they translate well through many different media, but yeah. yeah so I wanted the prints in person to be remarkable. So it's this process where they're, the there's not actually paper it's printed on an aluminum sheet so the black becomes this mirrory dark surface and it gives the the photographs kind of a um a weird sense of depth like they're almost a little like three-dimensional looking because the um the black is very deep oh wow that sounds really cool so when you're shooting these if you're using this kind of consumer grade film i'm assuming you do not have a color dark room at this place that you're kind of staying at for the summer no so you didn't see the you didn't really know what you captured yeah. until after the fact? <laughs> no, which is the great thing because yeah. also people can't ask you, like, how does it oh look? Oh, my God, right. Yeah, like, can, like, I can I see it? Can I see Can we redo I the whole? I just hate that. <laughs> it just changes everything when you can see. Huh. So, yeah, I don't. I did it all completely blind. Um, and, like, uh, I would come, you know, I would run into, I have a really great photo lab in um, uh, South Slope um, in Park Slope in Brooklyn that's, like, uh, 
you know, small family run business and they do it in half an hour and they do a great job. So I would run into town and get, you know, 50 roles developed at a time. And, um, yeah. And then I could see what I was doing kind of, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, a way of working that I really love because it frees me from, especially cause sometimes I do like editorial jobs and stuff. And that's always when someone's stylist wants to see what you've shot or I don't know, not like that happens that often, but it's just yeah, yeah. a situation I don't want to be in. <laughs> or like, I remember at, um, you know, when they would send, uh, an event photographer from, um, I don't know, I don't need to name the, the, the groups, but people probably know it there, but there, there's like a contractual thing that this person will be shooting the event until, you know, two 30 in the morning and all photos are delivered by 8am the next day in like a package, yes. like watermarked. And then you can buy which ones you think are good. And I was just like, do you just, you just don't sleep? I guess. I mean, you must, yeah. they must just go home and immediately turn them around. But yeah, the I, and that's a totally different game, but this kind of... I did that for a while. Yeah. I was a Patrick McMullen photographer for like a <laughs> month or two, but I wasn't very good at... That's the, you know, yeah, you do work all night and you're just... Um, uh, yeah, those jobs were, you know, they were like, you... like the Timberland's going to be at the party. We need a picture of like the, these five people uh -huh. with Timberland. Anyway, so did, you have to, so did you have to hold the camera out with the microphone and have people say their name? Yes, I yeah. did. I, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I remember the first but, time that I was asked that and I was like, really, you want to know my name? And then I realized <laughs> only after the fact that it was so that they could confirm that I wasn't a famous person <laughs> or somebody that they were supposed to have photographed. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the, you know, when they interview people like just to eliminate them from the murder suspect pool, it was mostly just to eliminate, <laughs> eliminate me from, from any He's not on the list. Yeah. No, yeah, don't, don't send him in the package. Um <laughs> were you were you cognizant of fire island like in your youth um or how far before you kind of made your first trip there were you aware of it and what were your impressions i was always aware of it as like a euphemism for gay like are you going to fire island this summer is uh -huh. another way of saying like are you gay and i think i was aware of this maybe not from childhood but from adolescence mm -hmm. or something and um which isn't you know there's actually many places on fire island that are for families and most of it is for you know anybody but there's these two kind of historically gay communities yeah i think it's a place that exists for a lot of people in the imagination which is part of what i like about it and part of what because i think that my picture of the place is like composed in sort of a documentary way of all of like the people and the places and the surfaces of that place but i think that it's a world of my own um you know it's certainly my own like skewed vision of the place yeah i don't know i mean i think the first time i went i was kind of um Oh, it was overwhelming because it was this culture that I sort of thought had disappeared in the AIDS crisis or something mm -hmm. with like, you know, bathhouses and, um, yeah, uh, you know, wild public sex and all of this stuff I thought like didn't exist anymore, but it's very much alive in a certain amount of places, um, many places. So it's, uh, so I think the first time I went, I was a little, yeah, I was like a little overwhelmed, but I definitely had a great time. And I, I got enough good pictures that time that I was encouraged to go back later. Was that, that was the underwear party coverage? That was the yeah. underwear party coverage. And it sounds like you made some friends that paid off in the end or that you kind of like remained in touch with to, to get some connections. Yeah. Well, and weirdly, my boyfriend, Oscar was at that party. I met him We're, we didn't get together until more recently, but I met him at that underwear party in 2014 or something so it was a very formative yeah. event 
that's (laughs) incredible the like friday night underwear party and it's held at this place called the ice palace which is yeah um the name couldn't be better and i want to name kind of the i have sort of a plan for a book that i'd like to publish of the work eventually and there's um the first chapter is called the ice palace so now we've sort of talked about some of the geography of the uh this kind of portion of the island a little bit and so based on the photo series my my understanding is that you in what you've described here you kind of focused on these three sites that are if um if like on the map if i've looked at it correctly they're only about a mile a total like a stretch of a mile but that's the belvedere guest house which is a lodging place yeah um there's the ice palace which is the club that you've just mentioned and then the meat rack which is this kind of wooded cruising area that is just a little bit to the east of those but they're all in this kind of condensed area right yeah there's also a few pictures from the pines which is the place that tom bianchi photographed really and then there's a few pictures from oakleyville which is where like peter hujar's photos from fire island were um but mostly, yeah, within that small area, it's true. The meat rack, though, has another uh, name that I learned of in Jack's writing, um, the the Judy Garland oh, Memorial I, Path, which I... It's I, the, yeah, I it's on Google Maps. It's yeah. the name of that road that goes through it. <laughs> that's, okay. um, that's great. It's, yeah. yeah, no, I think in his text, he also has this really great um, Liza Minnelli claim yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that Judy said that when, uh, when she died, they were going to fly the rainbow flag at half mast on fire <laughs> island and the flags would sing somewhere over, over the, the rainbow, rainbow yeah. and which I, I think that happens weekly so um that's incredible she was right um, but they i mean they do when someone dies there they fly they do they fly the rainbow flag half mast the the person the owner of the belvedere sadly passed away at the end of the summer while i was photographing there um and the yeah, they flew the flag half mast, both at the Belvedere and at the ferry dock. And did Frank O'Hara die on Fire Island too? He did. There's, I mean, one of the things that I'm doing in the work is photographing the death sites of people. And Frank O'Hara, as I know, I've researched exactly where that happened. There was, you know, he was coming back from a party at night, and he sort of got separated from his group and was um, hit by a dune buggy. That's so uh, insane. It's a really wild way way to go. I mean, and also yeah. just so young. It was, I mean, horrible. But and I want to. There are these paintings by Alfred Leslie that are like this painting cycle about the death of Frank O'Hara, and there are these really kind of amazing, huge paintings. And I want to make something there, but I want to go back in the winter and photograph it in the snow, because um, it's this. Yeah, because it's just this kind of a spot on the beach. Um, but I also photographed like the death site of America's first feminist author, Margaret Fuller. Yeah. Um, there's like a, yeah, there's sort of the theme of death that runs through the work, but I think is also just pl- present in the place. Yeah. Uh, itself. Um, maybe I'm just attracted to morbid themes, but it seemed like something that just kept coming up for me. Well, yeah, I think, and um, in Jack's writing, it also kind of, it references those things and also suggests that some of the works that you're putting forward have this certain kind of funeral quality to them. And, you know, I suppose when looking at Fire Island as a site too, you know, beneath the kind of reverie or this like ostensible hedonism, there's there's a reminder of all the lives lost, yeah. um, particularly around the uh, 1980s and 90s, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so uh, it's interesting as I was thinking about the work and looking at it and reading what Jack was writing, I was thinking about you as a photographer having to both look to the future and to the past simultaneously in this spot. You were talking yourself about it being, you know, not only 
an environment or a place that perhaps you thought didn't exist anymore or kind of just like a scene that maybe didn't exist anymore. Um, so you're both kind of having to look backwards and capture that while also, you know, the images do have, they've still got a lot of like joy and kind of optimism or looking to the future in them. And it's such a weird position to be in as a photographer to have to be, I don't know if you're accountable for capturing both, but it feels Mm -hmm. almost like in a site like that, that's part of the duty. And I think, I think Jack points out in that writing how you've kind of nicely done that um with this sort of celebratory but also i guess in some cases like not morbid but like measured kind of sober tone in some of the Mm. images oh i like that description how do you celebrate and mourn at the same time like as a photographer it's a it's a it's an interesting challenge to be doing i guess yeah i mean i've never been interested in showing like the joy of life as a subject like i'm not really and i think photography is like an inherently yeah, um, uh, a morbid process that we're engaged in. But like you said, I feel like there's a way, like I reason, well, I'm making all my students this year read Kaja Silverman's book, The Miracle of Analogy, which is this kind of like early history of photography, which compares photographs by Fox Talbot and all these people kind of through the lens of contemporary art and artists. And um, she speaks about photographs in this really inspiring way where it's like they're sort of like reaching forward through time. Like when you make a photograph, it's always reaching forward, like waiting to be received in the future by someone who um, can uniquely like understand it or um, has has the right knowledge and is in the right frame of mind and is in the right place in their life to like receive the image. This is how I understand this one part of that text. But I, I, I think that's a really hopeful idea. And is, um, and I do think about like my friend, the poet Susan Howe has this idea of like, I think she calls it documentary telepathy, which is like the idea that facts throughout many different periods in time can sort of speak to each other telepathically through the archive. And, and like, and I think that what I'm, a lot of what I'm trying to show in this is sort of this in previous work that I've done, I've always included, because part of what I do is or part of what I've done professionally even is like image research and like, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, archival research uh, sp- specifically related to photographs. And, and so that, but in this work, I really wanted to figure out a way to put all of the histories that I was looking at into the actual photographs and to not kind of combine them with archival materials in any way. And to not, I wanted it to all go into the pictures in the end. Um, and so I hope that there's this way where they can be these kind of, I think of them as like fragments or something that are, um, maybe together have this sort of like, yeah, this like frag makes this sort of fragmented view of a world that is like both now and can also contains the history of the place or something like that. There's a, and I think perhaps too, it's the quality of film, the quality of the mm-hmm. imagery too, that there's a, there's this kind of like timelessness to it. Like if you, you know, those, those several of those images could be from, you know, decades ago, for sure, uh, they could they could exist at all these different points in time. That's that's interesting in in relationship to fragmenting or kind of like fragmenting the picture plane, I guess. And also earlier, what we were talking about in relationship to the grandeur of the space. One interior design element, um, particularly prominently at the Belvedere House, in those images, uh, is the mirror. Yeah, and I think that you know, from a a quick kind of thought process it's like the mirror could be such a trope in photography you know this kind of thing and yet in in these it's you've played with it in this really fun way where it does it does in several of the images become this this portal this secondary kind of 
looking glass that's beyond the frame and you see all these other things going on. I'm thinking particularly about there's one image of um, like the spiral staircase that's going up. Oh, yeah. And there's all these different things. You're getting different gazes going on and all these things like that. And it's uh, how were you scouting the places and thinking, how am I going to account for these mirrors? Yeah. Or <laughs> I mean, because some of them, they're so kind of prominent in the picture. You'd have to either take them down or like start to direct people to be you be here, you be here and then making sure that everything kind of bounces because there's all these different uh i uh, like sight lines that the eyes going through them too it's really kind of like cubist yeah I don't know. It's like... well it's like i think you know one of the things that i that comes up in the work is this kind of like escapist like forever young idea that i think is part of the gay imaginary or like and i think that like narciss narcissus comes into that narcissus comes into that in a you know uh -huh. and like and, yeah. the, and the belvedere is this place that's kind of this like faux um classical space that's like uh it mixes all these different symbologies together that i'm so interested in like there's yeah there's mirrors everywhere inside of that place and also pictures of men on the walls everywhere and it's you know it was built by um as i understand it he, this guy john eberhardt who was an early set decorator for tv and he um although i've heard other people say he was a, a set decorator for the metropolitan opera but in any case it's you know every surface of that guest house is hand painted with these bizarre there's this recurring motif which is in one of the pictures of like a man at the end of the world it's like a sort of uh -huh. ruinous landscape with like a muscular figure sort of staring out into it um, like a lone <laughs> you know figure and also all of these you know obelisks and columns and laurel wreaths and cherubs and whatever um so it seemed like it was just a set for like um uh, you know it was waiting to be activated by like the figures, but I needed to get, you know, that picture you're referring to of the spiral staircase took me maybe, yeah, like the entire, all three months to accomplish. Like I had planned, I had wanted to do that, but it's not, I don't actually like, oh, I'm sorry, my dog is just, just <laughs> yeah, I had, I had wanted to, make that picture for a really long time um and it was you know i kept asking to get access to that room and there's sort of this grand ballroom in the middle of the belvedere which is okay. um technically part of the living quarters of the people who own it and run it and so i kept wanting to photograph in there and they were being very hesitant but it was like yeah i think it was something where i needed to spend i needed to show them that i was there the whole time and i was you know that was uh um but and it turned out you know i think it was just out of sensitivity to the owner who was um you know uh suffering from i think he, he passed away died of cancer um and and it uh so yeah it took and so i was able eventually to get you know i had gotten sort of seven guys I think who agreed to be in that shoot who were like I needed to sort of cast like you know some of them were people who were staying at the Belvedere some of them are people who um had um agreed to Deborah you need to sit down um really sorry about this um some of them are people who uh had like just agreed to uh one of them was like kind of a, a town historian of cherry grove one of them there are people for, that i had met and some of them i had photographed before in different situations but i eventually was allowed to get them together into this room and we did this shoot and it was we had to be very quiet and it was it was you know lasted um 
you know, we can only do kind of an hour and it had to be very, you know, silently directed. But I also, I don't want to plan. I think one of the great things that photography does is like captures something that you don't expect. And so I didn't want to plan, like, it's not like I'm going to draw out the picture that I want, mm-hmm. but I'm like, oh, this spiral staircase and the mirror are going to be useful for something. I, yeah, I'm not interested in control it. Cause that was something I didn't actually expect to happen. Like that image, it wasn't like I had planned. And also I'm using, it's very dark in the places that I'm photographing. Yeah. I'm using a really wide angle lens just on a technical, it's like a 20 millimeter lens. So I get a lot of the things that I get in the frame. I can't actually plan for because I just can't, <laughs> like I don't see them. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so that was like kind of a spontaneous, but I feel like if you get a bunch of people together in the right situation, it's always going to be kind of interesting if they're willing to like, you know, try different stuff. Um, so some of the photographs in, particular have they've got these different uh ranges of age in people this kind of intergenerational quality going on there's one in particular that i i'm not looking at it at the moment but there's kind of i think like four to six kind of older guys sort of looking over this balcony area kind of down at the viewer and then there are these other ones that are out in the meat rack or or other places that are really young guys or you've got like you know as jack mentions in the writing you've got these kind of like like twinks on beds and things so there's this whole spectrum of like different generations going on and is that something that you kind of see outside of fire island also i mean i've talked to other people before who said you know this is kind of a it's an intergenerational thing (laughs) i'm thinking like you know sort of like the vets of fire island and then the noobs Mm -hmm. or like the rookies or something is there kind of like a a mentorship going on how is the (laughs) how are people introduced (laughs) to the island (laughs) sex mentorship it's like um yeah i i don't know well it's like it's you know it's uh when i went to cover that story about the underwear parties it did seem like that was one of the few places where you got this real mixing of many different kinds of people. Like, I feel like I don't go out that much, you know, I'm not really like a club person, but I, um, when I go to New York, I feel like you see, you know, mostly like younger hot guys at the, you know, like art, art parties or something. But, um, definitely on Fire Island, there's like this kind of old, old guard of people. And I think I wanted to figure out a way in the work to show, Mm. I don't know. Cause one of the questions I have is like, what have we inherited in this place? Like what, um, you know, I think it's kind of a place that has been passed down to us from a different generation. So I sort of structured the work as like sort of a flight from this burning hotel because I sort of staged a few pictures where it looks like maybe the, um, the hotel is burning. Um, and it was sort of a flight from there through this like cruising ground forest to the ocean and sort of what I wanted I think to express over the progression of that was sort of a changing of the guard or like some kind of like generational turnover because I do I question like what the purpose of a men only guest house is in like a culture where people are no longer like having as much use for even like gender boundaries Mm -hmm. or you know where people are like um as definitions of queerness are expanding, I wonder kind of what the role of a space that's pretty um, homosocial like this is, or, you know, like, yeah. uh, um, or what it will. So I think it's a place in transition. It's also a barrier Island, which is like kind of an endangered landscape and it's changing the cha- the shape of the Island changes with the tides. Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's like a, um, I think that, both the culture and the physical place are kind of uh, undergoing this 
change that I, I'm interested in. Yeah, I, and I understand too. I mean, just thinking about it kind of as as an older guard or an older generation who's probably, you know, this is sort of a sanctuary space or 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 a place to be. As you mentioned earlier, you know, if you went there with a, a camera in the, let's say, the, the 60s or something, people might be very upset that you're documenting them, that you're outing them. I understand that there's probably kind of like a, a protective nature to kind of what has been built there, etc. But as you're pointing out, too, there's this younger generation who's coming in that kind of has different perspectives on things, who certainly hasn't grown up with uh, anything being easy in the culture that we live in. But in some cases especially in new york city easier or like Mm -hmm. you know different things like that and yeah that's a that's an interesting identity crisis for a place like that that's been that is kind of like burned into the kind of cultural imagination as this very specific type of place and then you've got a whole younger generation of people who who just have a different take on like you said like queerness or spaces or anything like yeah. that. Like I imagine nightlife on Fire Island looks radically different than nightlife in the Lower East Side, you know? Oh, absolutely. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I've done a, ser- a number of, um, I'm interested in these gay destination, historically gay destination vacation spots, because I feel like there was a time when they were really essential to the community. Uh, but I think as you're saying, like now it's no longer always necessary for people to go to geographic extremes to express their sexuality. So I've done a piece on like the changing dynamics of the beach in Provincetown and like how it used to be, you know, this was the lesbian section and this is the gay section. And now, um, now that straights aren't afraid of us anymore, there's like families that go and it's much more like mixed together. And it's like, Oh God, people, there's, there's probably like, Oh no, there's probably like <laughs> families with children named Aiden who are like taking their kids intentionally just to be like, we go to the gay beach with our kids. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's it. And it's like, but, and I think that there's, especially, you know, some of the older people are not, don't, don't like it. I can, you know, well, um, I can, I can see why people <laughs> wouldn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but also like Key West is a place where I photographed extensively and that used to be very gay, but it's now, you know, the, it's hard even to find the signs of gay culture there. It's so overrun by people, tourists off cruise ships and stuff. And yeah, so I do, I want to, I, I have, I think it's part of a larger project where I want to record these places because I feel like they're sort of slowly changing yeah yeah in the i mean just yeah the the physical landscape of fire island too it's an interesting parallel just uh it 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 got hit by sandy i know that the island has had all these different things like that so just kind of that as a as kind of a baseline going on as the culture around it changes too is kind of a it it seems like a really activated kind of energy filled site with all of that stuff going on at once very fertile ground for a photographic series um yeah, like a couple of years ago, I was taking the Long Island Railroad to go out to uh, Southampton to go install some artwork when I was working at Bruce High Quality. And I remember, I don't remember the exact Long Island Railroad stop. Maybe it's like Babylon or, or somewhere around there. Yeah. But I remember this like exodus off of the train of all of these people who were getting off to like take ferries over to uh, Fire Island. And just this kind of like, everybody looked so pleased with themselves that they were getting and i was like so upset that i was gonna go stand in the sun inland and like put up this giant stupid sculpture like in the sun to hope some rich people might want to like look at it or something and i was just like so jealous i was like y'all are going to this like you're getting on a boat and going to a private island to go party all weekend it seemed much more fun yeah well i mean but it does there was definitely something i was interested in in like 
I don't know where that expression comes from of like staying too long at the fair, but like I definitely <laughs> felt like I, you know, I was three. like, I did this for like three months straight without, yeah. and I, was, I went out and photographed every day. I was relentless about it. And so it was, um, at a certain point I was just like, I've had enough of the beach. I'm actually not someone who likes the sun. I don't, I don't like, really, I don't like the beach. <laughs> I'm not a, yeah, uh, no, I, I do like, I would get up and swim in the morning and that was nice, but it was at a certain, I was just so sunburned by the end of it. Mm-hmm. And I was there. <laughs> actually the pestilence, like there's ticks and mosquitoes and stuff. And I was in the middle of the woods. And so I'm not terribly (laughs) outdoorsy, but it was, you know, I did start to care about like, you know, what birds, I got a bird watching book and I started, I thought that was strictly for the elderly, but it turns out. no, no, It's when you have the time. Yeah. But yeah, I, I imagine it's like, it's like if you went to Las Vegas for more than 48 hours. Yeah, but it's good. But I think that, you know, you ended up because you and, and also I'm sure that part of it is that there are cycles and cycles of people coming through that you're kind of experiencing. Yeah. So you're really cognizant of the passage of time because you're seeing like new like, oh, it's this like micro seasons within the season almost of seeing yeah, people come sure. through. And people really do these like summer share things where they'll, they they get a house for a certain amount of weekends throughout the summer. So some people that I photographed, you know, I was able to, if I really enjoyed the interaction or I liked, you know, maybe I would just meet them and do a shoot outside and then we could, but it turned out they were going to be back like four more times throughout the summer and we could kind of schedule different, you know, yeah. it was, um, it, it was an endlessly refreshing pool of subjects, but, um, actually some of the people that I photographed, you know, worked there a lot, quite a few of the people, because those are the people who were there all summer. You know, I think there is a real thing where you have to have, you know, unless, you know, you have to have quite a bit of money to just exist there Mm. for a long period of time or to have a house there or to even to stay at the Belvedere is like, you know, you need to have a certain amount of money. So it's like, you know, so it's mostly kind of older people, I think, who are able to do that. And some, you know, like, in the pines, there's like a lot of kind of younger professionals who are able to do it. And like some artists through these residency programs and stuff are able to come for longer periods of time. But I think it's, you know, often the younger people that you see there are like someone's miserable Wall Street sugar baby or some kind of. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in, I think the progression in the work is hopefully meant to show this kind of um, generational change in a way that's like, I don't know, I didn't want to I was worried it would be too on the nose or something anyway, but I'm trying to, yeah, I'm definitely, and I'm also trying to show the elements like fire, like literally like talking about like morbid funeral practices. Like I've also been photographing in this crematorium in Ridgewood as sort of a side project. And okay. Yeah. Just as out of interest, there's <laughs> this historic, it's the oldest crematorium in the fun. United States. Really? It's just, it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a fresh pond crematorium, but um, it's called the fresh pond crematorium. Yeah, that's and, a name, and, uh, man. That is a name. I am actually. I want to have a show there. The guy who runs it's um, very enthusiastic. But I, uh, yeah. But I've been photographing there, and I there's this weird similarity where sort of the, I would say that the symbol of the Belvedere is this like flaming urn thing. They have like many, many of these flaming urn sculptures, both inside and outside of the guest house, and the the crematory is has the same insignia. It's like the really? same kind of like um victorian looking like flaming urn urn thing that happens again and again and the and actually i saw this show like a show of joan jonas's work where i felt like she used the elements really effectively and like actually looking back at her work like that she has always used like 
literally like water and air really, I think in a very moving ways. And so I wanted to show the elements in the work, like including fire and the way that sort of they wear away at things. And um, I think as another attempt to kind of show the passage of time, but it was something I was really trying to include because I think to show the elements is so powerful. Yeah. And you were, well, you, and you were embedded in them for, it, it's easy to, it, it's easy to take the elements for granted or, or to forget that they exist rather when you're in New York city and, and just kind of, yeah. and then oh, for sure. when you're thrown into, you're just like, I'm yeah. living in a cabin in the woods. <laughs> it's like you become yeah. very aware of them because they're, I, I mean, just literally their rhythms dictate a lot of what you can and can't do, you know, yeah, for because sure. you're, especially if you're trekking across two miles of sand, lugging photo stuff with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, well, Matthew, thanks for spending some time with me today. And the show is up, as I said, through December 2nd, right? At Delhi Gallery, yes, which, has, which is now in Brooklyn, correct? It's now, yeah, it's on Waterbury Street in Bushwick, uh, a beautiful new space that's kind of double the size of his older space. It's my friend Max's gallery, Max Marshall. Hi, Max. And, <laughs> hi, Max. And so, yeah, he's a real, he's a hell of a guy. And the, uh, yeah, and it's open through December 2nd. Um, in uh, December 1st, we're going to have a panel of uh, emerging art dealers that I'm organizing for my students. But if anyone feels like coming to that, it's also open to the public. So All right. And you said there may be a performance coming up, too, that you're working deets out on? Yeah, I can. I'll send you. I'll invite you. Okay. If it comes out, if it comes out before this is released, I'll put the info in it. And if not, I would suggest that people. I'm imagining that Delhi will send out information for that. I would sign up for their email list because actually, that's one of the few galleries that I, I always open and read the press releases and check out what's going on because I'm always like impressed with what's going on and. Generally, the communications are really good, which is such a funny <laughs> thing to say for a gallery. But I, gen uh, I genuinely, that's why when I got it, I was like, oh, I'm excited to read this. He will and be I <laughs> Like I usually, nine, 95% of them, I just mass click yeah. and delete and don't read, e even from spaces that I sometimes like. But Delhi, I always look at it. So <laughs> that's a plug for me. I'm telling you, for this is the only time I'll ever tell you to do this. Sign up for a gallery's email list because it's, it's great and the info is good. Yeah, and you'll find sure. out about the performance. Uh oh, Probably. <laughs> well thank you so much sean yeah thank you too and to everybody out there thanks so much we will catch you next week I made the